At Urban Farm Podcast, we are all about education, and April is Foliar Feeding Month. Have you heard of it? It is a super simple application of spraying liquid organic fertilizer on your trees and garden plants. The leaves, branches, and trunks are incredible at absorbing nutrients. And if your soil isn't great or your pH is off, foliar feeding is a quick and long-lasting fix to get your plants the nutrients they need. Want to learn more? Join us for our free online webinar on how to apply this amazing process to your gardens and fruit trees. Visit urbanfarm.org to sign up. That's urbanfarm.org. Greetings, urban farmers, gardeners, and healthy food visionaries. Farmer Greg here, and welcome to the 529th episode of the Urban Farm Podcast, where every day we work to educate and inspire you to become part of your food revolution. Hello, hello, everybody. Greg Peterson coming to you from the Urban Farm in the heart of Phoenix, Arizona. Tonight, we are here for our monthly seed chat, and I'm so excited because not only do I have Bill McDorman here from Rocky Mountain Seed Alliance. Welcome, Bill. Uh, good evening, Greg. As always, it's a pleasure to be here. Oh, always fun. I have Kari Spencer. She's the uh, proprietor at the Microfarm Project here and an author. We'll let her tell you about her book here toward the end, but welcome, Kari. Thank you. Glad to be here. And we are going to be talking about starting seeds, seed starting. What's that look like? You know, what challenges might we have? And honestly, I'm going to step back and kind of be in the background tonight and let uh, Bill and Kari take it from here. Yes, Kari, I'm so excited you're here. You know, I've, I've been involved in the seed world for a long, long time, decades, but I'm still not an expert at starting them. I've, I concentrated my whole career on saving them. And so we're really excited to have you here tonight. And so I know this is big for American gardeners as a whole, is that, you know, the nursery industry is huge because of insecurity about people actually starting things from seed. And I know all of us have probably had some failures. So are there like two or three or four things that you, tips or things that you could tell us all that, that might get us way down the road as if we really want to, you know, say we've saved some seeds and now we want to start them or we just want to start the cycle by getting some seeds and, and rolling up our sleeves and, and learning how to have green thumbs, I guess. Yeah, sure. There are, you know, you mentioned that the nurseries stay in business with their seeds, you know, with their starter plants because people are afraid to make their own transplants, but it's it's actually really easy to do. And of course, there's going to be some failure involved in it because sometimes things work, sometimes they don't. And that's just true about gardening. But there are some things that we can do to create more success so that we can have that excitement of having our own seeds that we start, our own plants that we started ourselves. And I think that probably the first key is that I would recommend that anything that you can just direct sow right in the ground, do that. <laughs> because that is so much, you know, that's so much easier than actually starting yeah. a transplant. You just want loose soil that's free of rocks and other debris. Make it nice and smooth and plant your seeds straight in the garden. That's the easiest thing to do. But sometimes we have reasons for starting transplants. So if you want to start, if you want to grow things that take a really long time to grow and you have sort of a short growing season, then you may need to start some transplants. As an example, here in Phoenix where I grow, 
we do transplants for tomatoes because tomatoes take a really long time to grow and they require very specific temperatures to set their pollen. So if we go out and we plant them out when it's warm enough in Phoenix for them to sprout, if we plant them in the ground, it will take too long for them to grow to be mature enough to set flowers, and then it's too hot and the pollen all dies. So if we want to grow tomatoes here in Phoenix, we actually have to start our transplants inside in November and December. And then we transfer those transplants out to the garden in February and March, right before those temperatures become just in the perfect range for tomatoes to flower and to set fruit. So that's one reason. If things take too long to actually grow out in the growing seasons that you have in your uh, climate. Another reason is that sometimes people want to succession plant. So they might plant some seeds Mm -hmm. in the ground, but not have room for everything that they want to grow that year. So they might start some plants in containers that when they harvest the first plants that they sowed in the ground, then they can immediately put a transplant in and get a second crop. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what I yep. do for cauliflowers because you know how much room cauliflower takes in the garden. It takes up so much real estate. Yeah. And it takes a while to grow. Right? Wow. So I, when I when I plant my cauliflower in the ground shortly thereafter, <laughs> I am going to start some in some containers so that when I harvest that cauliflower, I can stick another one in the ground that's already got a little bit of a head start and get a second crop. Wow. So that's another so, reason that you, you might want to start some transplants. So if I'm just starting out, I'm brand new at this, dirt, I've got my seeds, you know, what are the specific conditions I need to set up if I want my seeds to actually germinate? Okay, well, first thing you want to do is that you want to make sure that you are starting your transplants at the right time so that they're not mm-hmm. too big or too small when it's actually time to go set them out in the garden. And how so, do you know that? So, well, yeah. <laughs> you know, you can use a planting calendar for your area, or you can call your local master gardeners, consult with garden groups, and find out what they start and when they start up, and make sure that you are starting them at the right time. That way you'll have success. The next thing you want to do is to make sure that you have the right temperatures for seeds. It's usually, what, Bill, about 78 degrees, most seeds? Yeah, you know, something, you know, mustards and some of the things I think will start with the soil colder, but the warmer temperature doesn't hurt them. And then that's absolutely necessary, isn't that, for like tomatoes and peppers. you got to have have the soil warmer like 70 or something. Right. So you have to have a place in your house where you can get that temperature. And you may need to have a heat lamp or you may need to put a warming uh, mat underneath your seeds to get to that right temperature depending on where they are. Uh, You know, my grandfather used to start tomatoes in his basement in Wisconsin. It was cold, right? He Mm -hmm. had plenty of light because he had window wells and he had grow lights. But he didn't, he had to have something to keep those seeds warm. Otherwise, they would never (laughs) germinate in his basement. So you'll want to make sure that you. Yeah, you don't want to use grandma's heating pad, right? They make um, heat mats specifically for this, I think, that are waterproof. (laughs) Yes, (laughs) good point. Yeah, grandma's (laughs) heating pad, first of all, will probably get too hot. (laughs) And secondly, yeah, it's probably not very safe. To do that. So, yeah, you can buy 
you can buy either heat lamps or you can buy some pads that are specifically made for starting seeds to go underneath your seed trays. Uh, also, putting your seeds in a south-facing window where they get plenty of light and where it can be warmer helps. So if you have a south-facing window, that might be the spot that you'll want to put them in so that now, your seeds but, but will then, germinate. But you got to check them, right? Because the important thing is that they have to be damp. Don't they have to get wet? Isn't that what triggers it? Yeah, they do. They need to stay wet. They need to absorb moisture to trigger the germination. So you're going to actually need to water those seeds, you know, regularly. As soon as that soil starts to really dry out, you'll need to water them again. And sometimes, depending on what you're using to start your seeds, uh, that could be twice a day. <laughs> if I'm if I'm watering them with a, I often will water with a spray bottle with a fine mist. Then I have to do that several times a day because I want to keep that soil about as wet as a wrung out sponge. Now, yes, yeah, go ahead. You have to you have to keep them wet. But anyone who's been a gardener for very long knows that keeping things really wet can also encourage mildew and fungus, right? <laughs> So <laughs> you're making this difficult, <laughs> <laughs> but it's not because your workaround for that is just to start with a sterile potting soil. Okay? okay, one of the most one of the most heartbreaking things for a gardener is when they're starting their transplants. They're keeping those seeds nice and wet. The seeds germinate, and you start to see those little tiny baby plants. That's so exciting, and then you come back later. And there's no evidence of them at all because they've just died off and it seems like they just sort of melt back into the soil. That's called damping off. And that's a problem that occurs when your seed trays and your soil that you're using aren't sterile. Okay? It's, we don't worry about that so much out in the, in an outdoor garden when we plant them in the ground because there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of bacteria and other microbes that can compete with the fungus. But in a seed tray, if a fungus takes hold, it has no competitors and it'll just kill your tiny little plants right away. So so if I see some of my plants starting to die that way, what do I do? Is there anything you can do or do you just have to sit and watch them all die over the next couple of days? <laughs> well, usually it happens all at once, and then you just start over, which okay. don't worry if all that right. happens. It just it does sometimes. It does, even to experienced gardeners. But you, uh, if you start to notice it, you can cut back the water a little bit. Maybe you're keeping it too wet. If you started with a sterile soil and it's still happening, maybe you're keeping it too wet. And you can get sterile potting soil at any nursery. There are recipes online if you want to look it up, how to make your own potting soil and how to sterilize it. You can reuse potting soil. You just need to heat it up to 180 degrees in your oven for about 30 minutes to sterilize it. Mm, um, I'll bet that smells but, good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it looks like brownies but tastes like dirt. So, <laughs> And you'll want to make sure that whatever you're using, your seed trays or your little Transplant containers are sterile also, and uh, you can do that by just spraying them with some hydrogen peroxide, and that will take oh. care of the, the oh. fungus or mildews or other things that want to grow in them. So if you're, especially if you're reusing them, like you used them last year, I'm going to use them right. this year. I'm just going to want to spray them 
you know, rinse them out and then spray them with some hydrogen peroxide and then let that dry and then start here. Start well, that's a great there. trick. You know, I thought you were going to say we had to do boiling water. <laughs> well, that might melt your seed trays. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. one thing that you can do is put them out, put your trays out in the sun. But in Phoenix, you can melt a seed tray out in the sun. So you have to be oh careful about that. You know, it's pretty much foolproof if you just spray it with the hydrogen peroxide. Oh, that's great. And then is there anything you can spray? Sometimes... It seems like in, in uh, years past, I saw products you could buy to help with damping off. I remember even somebody saying that chamomile tea or something something like that worked. Have you ever had an experience with any of those things? I've never used any of those things. I would never say that they don't work because all kinds of things work for people. Yeah. So it's worth, I, I always think it's worth a try, but I haven't really yeah. had the need for that. Once I got the hang of how I needed to do things, I don't have as much problem with the damping off as I did at the beginning when I think I was probably keeping things too wet. You know, yeah. kind of you don't want you don't want that soil sopping wet all the time. Just like I said, right. as as moist as a wrung out sponge is good enough. Or like my friend Chris, like my friend says, as moist as moist as a fresh cupcake. Ooh. That's nice. I think what helped me too was when I finally learned to make my potting soil lighter. You know, there's a difference between regular soil and potting soil. And the difference is how much it weighs, if, if, among other things, right? Like there's perlite or vermiculite and, and peat moss and other things that don't weigh very much to keep more air, I guess, in the soil. And when there's more air, I guess you have less chance of fungus also. At least that's how I always looked at it. Yes, that's true. You know, you if you go to the nursery and you buy a bag of potting soil, you might feel like you're not getting your money's worth because you can just pick it up with, you know, two fingers instead of having to lug it right. like a big bag of soil. Right. But that is because it does have perlite in it and other lightweight uh -huh. materials that do, like you said, help to keep that soil loose and light and let airflow get in there because that airflow can really help to prevent mildew and fungus. And if you can have also airflow where you're starting your plant. Right. That helps. Yeah, like it, not like your grandfather down in the basement, right? <laughs> right, <laughs> Although yeah. He did, yeah, you know, it's nice to have. Well, and, I've, and, you know, some people have even put fans, but I really like, you know, I never thought about it, but you're perfectly on when you say cupcake, a moist cupcake. You know, that's really what I try to do with my soil is get it like that. And then uh, you're right. I've, I haven't had any problem for years since I started, you know, kind of got my, my, the feeling of how it all should work down. And so I guess I'm offering hope to people that have had everything die. You're, it, don't give up. You know, you'll, you'll find your range and your materials and, uh, it'll finally work for you and then you'll be over it probably. Yeah. Most of learning the garden is actually getting out there and doing it and, and sometimes making mistakes. So yeah. we can tell you everything that we know, but until you know it by experience, it really is, you know, it's not a full breadth of knowledge. You've got to get out there because things are different in different people's climates and their yards and their, in their area. And so you got to learn what works for you and what works in your climate. Well, and then if I had one more thing to say to people is that, you know, make sure you do keep them moist. And sometimes what I would do for seeds that took a long time to germinate, like carrot seeds, for some reason, take a couple weeks. 
Sometimes I would put a piece of damp newspaper over them, whether they're in, out in my yard or in a flat or a tray or whatever. And that seemed to help. So the newspaper would dry out all day, but the soil underneath would stay just right. So you can use little tricks like that, I think. And, you know, when I had my seed company and, and this was back before the internet, and if people had problems with my seeds, you know, that I was selling, of course it was my fault, right? Your seeds don't work. <laughs> I could, and I would get thousands of calls like that. And so I would start asking questions about, well, so how did you set it up? What's going on? What are you doing? And, and over the years, I'll just make the short, the story short is the number one reason why people didn't get their seeds to come up was that sometime between when they first started watering and those seeds started swelling up and that little radical, they call it the little root, you know, finally comes out, you know, a few days later and then goes into the soil. That from the time that that seed first started to swell up with water until that little radical gets in the ground, if it dries out, even for a little bit, uh, it's dead. It's over. And yeah. that's just what happened to most of the the failures over the years, over a 28-year period that I that I heard about. And I had a poor woman one time she was planting outside and she had some wildflower seeds that I sold and they didn't work. Nothing came up. So I gave her a whole nother set and she went home and they didn't work. And by now we're both invested in trying to figure it out. And she said, well, my sprinkler system comes on twice a day, you know, to keep moist or whatever. And I went over there and it was basically a gravel pit, kind of sandy, gravelly pit where she was trying to grow these wildflowers, which was okay, except that on a hot day in July, it was drying out in 20 minutes. And so we yeah. finally got had a success over there, but I had her sprinkler system come on eight times a day, just for a few minutes, you know, just for five or 10 minutes. But unless we did that, that soil dried out in between and all the seeds died every time. And so I always take that as a lesson going in it. Just make sure whatever you do, not to second guess that part of the process. Yeah, that's true. And you you have to go out and check. You can't, you know, if somebody says, well, water them two or three times a day and you just water them two or three times a day, that might be too much or too little depending on your conditions. You have to feel that soil. And make sure it's not drying out because the seeds, if they are swelling and shrinking and swelling and shrinking because they're getting wet and then drying out, then, yeah, it damages them and uh, they yeah. won't germinate. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and you made a point, too, that she was putting them in a, a hard, rocky soil. Now, if you're yeah. sowing seeds directly in the ground, you want to make sure that that soil is free of obstructions like rocks and big chunks and clods of dirt and make it as as loose as you possibly can in the ground and also smooth. I don't know, for some reason for me, seeds germinate a lot better if the ground is smooth. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. It might just be at my house, but, but yeah, I like to take a board and just smooth it all out and then plant my seeds. Yeah. I don't know why that works better, but it does for me. We- well, yeah. Well, as I get older, too, those kinds of rituals, you know, I sort of worked out my way of doing it. I mean, every time I plant a seed, I, I'm a little bit nervous. You know, it's a big commitment. Am, am I planting the right thing? Am I planting it at the right time? Do I have the right varieties? You know, all those questions come to every good gardener, probably. But then it, it's kind of scary when you commit 
to actually doing it. And so I found that having those little rituals, and I like that idea of, of getting a board or whatever and making it smooth, I think all of that helps you feel better, <laughs> you know. And and because you feel better and you're more involved, it probably works better. I don't know. It's kind of fun. I'm going to jump in here because I've got oh. a trick. I, I always have something to say. Uh, I've got a <laughs> trick that I've used for years. Once Once the bed is prepped and – the seeds are in and it's smooth and everything. I get an old bed sheet and I put the old bed sheet down on top. It acts kind of like a top mulch, keeps some of the moisture in, uh-huh. keeps the bugs and the birds away. And then I, I'll pull the sheet up when the, you know, the plants are starting to come up and it doesn't, it doesn't hurt the plants. But when they start poking up and you can start seeing lumps in the sheet, that's when I pull the sheet up. And that's, that's, I've had some great success with that. That's a great idea, Greg, because those birds love those little <laughs> seedlings. <laughs> yeah. Well, here's the, here's the other thing I discovered. The big seeds, so the beans and the corn and the peas like that, for whatever reason, the birds have radar or sonar. And once those start coming up, man, they are all over it and they're after the seeds. So they'll take your, you know, take them out like that. So one of the things that I discovered a few years ago is I used my index finger. My index finger is what, about three inches long? I poke a hole down three inches and I drop the seed all the way down three inches and then I cover it up with soil. And by the time it kicks through, especially under the sheet, by the time it kicks through, the birds have lost interest in that seed because they didn't ever get to see the seed in the first place. Wow. Yeah. Well, you know, the Hopi plant their corn 12 inches deep. Wow. <clears throat> they well, selected it so that it actually pushes up through 12 inches of soil. But they do yeah. it because that's the only place they have moisture. Right. But I'll bet it works for that, too. I'll, be, I'll mm-hmm. bet it does keep the birds away. Huh. Good idea. And that, and that just goes to show you that rules of thumb don't always apply because the rule of thumb is to plant a seed twice as deep as the height, the longest side of the seed. That's just a rule of thumb, though, but it doesn't apply yeah. in every situation. <laughs> yeah. So, Kari, do you and Greg, do you guys soak any of your seeds before you plant them? I know my father does that, especially with, like peas and beans and corn and stuff like that, but... I think he even soaks his tomatoes or his pepper seed overnight before he puts them yes. in flats. Yeah, you you can soak your seeds. It really helps with those bigger seeds especially. Yeah, it does. It does help. It, it makes the germination faster. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'll say that. And, you, I mean, you could soak any seed, I suppose, but I just do the, the really big seeds. Okay. And just overnight. I was wondering. Well, one of the things that you have to do, so – I had this guy come into the nursery, I think in October, and he said, I'm having really a really hard time sprouting moringa seeds. Now, moringa seeds are hard as BBs, they're, you know, they're, and they're about the size of a small marble. And often when you get seeds like that, the water can't get in them. You, even soaking them doesn't work. So mm-hmm. what I told them to do was scarify them in some way. Basically, you need to scrape off the outer layer. You you can use sandpaper. I've heard of people boiling seeds before to kind of soften the the outer shell or you can drill a hole in them with a little with a, a, a drill. And he came on the lot 10 days ago and he said, "Oh my gosh, Greg, the first time I 
started Moringa seeds, out of 100 seeds, I got like 12. When I did the scarifying thing, he got like 72 out of 100 to sprout. So sometimes you have to, sometimes for the harder seeds, you have to get past the hard hard outer layer. Right. One of the old tales about lupin seeds is that you would put them in a cup of boiling water, like a a tea. Like you were making tea, only you'd pour the water without any tea in it. And then you would put your lupin seeds in there and you would leave them in there until the water cooled. And then that would make, help them germinate. And so. I've never tried that, but there's lots of stories of things like that trying to help break dormancy or really hard shells. Yeah. And that's a that's a study in and of itself, actually. But that's really, you know, this is an endless rabbit hole, folks. <laughs> you want to get started. <laughs> it's science, that's for sure. I know you teach in your seed school about how, how to treat tomato seeds because they you know, they, oh, they yeah. need a little bit of treatment when you collect them yourself to in order to germinate. Right. So, well, you know, yeah, just, Google, yeah. you know, the uh, Internet is your friend. So there's so much information out there. If you're not sure what to do and you don't have a gardener or a master gardener or someone that you can call, you know, look it up. So much information out there. And then verify. <laughs> yeah, you know, make sure unless... you get a few sources and that they – they agree before you just uh, go out there willy-nilly. It's always best to, to talk to someone directly who lives in your area because they yeah, know that's, what to do was, for your climate. I was going to come back to that, yes. That's what I've always found. The person who lives right next door to you probably has the best information for you, you know, because things are so different everywhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, Greg, do we have any questions tonight? Yeah, that's, we exactly where, questions? I was, that's where I was going to go next. Let's just check and see All what right. we've got. Tracy from Rollinsville says at 9,200, I'm just going to read these. I haven't pre-read them. At 9,200 altitude, foot altitude, do I use the maturity dates on the package for my altitude when figuring the time to start the seed? Using seeds from pen and cord, love pen and cord, at, they're at 80, 80, 100 feet, and then from seeds trust, and they're at 5,500 foot elevation thoughts well i you know i can speak to seeds trust because i probably wrote all those dates on the packets (laughs) yes you did (laughs) and those always referred to the time it takes to mature after you put a plant out if that's what you do Mm. so so for the uh, tomatoes and peppers and the cabbage family plants especially that's what i would figure because that's the days to maturity after you set a small plant out. The rest of them are from seeds. So, you know, how how that convention get has been picked up or furthered. If a catalog has a different convention, then they probably talk about it somewhere in the front of the catalog. And I don't know what Penn does. She was one of our students for years. She was actually one of the best customers for Seeds Trust over a 20-year period. And so I don't know how many days she puts on her packets, but ho- hopefully that answers your questions. So example, I think Sasha's Altai tomato is 63 days. So you would not get a tomato off of Sasha's at 9,200 feet if you just put a seed in the ground and waited 63 days. But if you put, a, say, a, a three to five or six-week old plant in the ground, you know, after the last frost, then you could probably get, get tomatoes in that period of time. I was just looking 
to see if I could find her because she was on the podcast. Here you go. Podcast 165 of the Urban Farm Podcast. Penn Parmenter on high-altitude tomatoes. That was from December 3rd of 2016. Wow. Time flies, man. She's, she's a great storyteller. That's, yeah. That is worth listening to. <laughs> yeah. 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 So, and I, for Tracy, I, you know, Tracy, you just got to experiment. You know, a lot of this stuff is, you know, we can take the data that we get, but then you have to figure out what works for you in your area. Uh, Denise from Amaranth says the boiling water trick for lupines. Does that also work for parsley? Experiment. I, I <laughs> say dry. What do you think, Bill? I don't think so. No. Parsley seeds are, um, germinate quite well. I've never heard of, um, problems germinating parsley. Um, that it way. just takes I a can, long time. It, yeah, and it's never you're never going to get a high germination rate. I think normal germination for parsley is like forty percent or something. Oh wow! Mm-hmm. I don't know. You know, Johnny's selected seed catalog over the years had a had a little a bar around each of their vegetables and herbs, and they actually used to put parsley in the vegetable section, and they would have normal germ, and that was just compiled from their own statistics over the years trying to plant the things. You know, some things like tomatoes have 90% germ and other things like onions, you know, you get 60%. And if you get into things like lavender or rosemary, if you get 10%, you're doing really well. And so you might want to learn those kinds of parameters too, because you may be trying to push the water upstream. You know, it may never get better than you're getting already. But I've never heard of having to do anything with parsley seeds. If anything, you know, they're they're quite hardy. Even if you lived in, in a cold place that gets snow or doesn't get snow, you could plant them in the fall. That's when they fall on the ground naturally. They're a biennial. And every time I've done that, it they, it just comes up. Isn't that your your experience there in Phoenix, Greg, with, with parsley self-seeding itself? Yep. And you too, Corey. Yeah, I think. Yeah. Yeah, if you can get but, it to... To, if you can grow some transplants once and then plant them out, you may never, never need to replant it again. It will self-seed. You'll get it year after year if uh, if all goes well. You know, one of the things that I've noticed about the parsley here is that it, it grew. So I've been growing parsley wild in my yard for, I'm going to say, 15 years. And there you go. It seems to have plateaued about three years ago. And I always just spread the seeds. You know, I let the plants go to seed and I I let them self-spread in the yard. And I only got one parsley plant that came up in the yard this year. So Mm. three years ago it plateaued and there was parsley growing everywhere. And over the past couple of years, it's, it's, it's gone down. Any thoughts on that though? It's just, you're wearing out the place. It's probably wants to move. (laughs) You could probably, you know, and, and rest that soil for a while. Yeah. I don't know all of what goes on there, but I seem to notice that with things that self-seed in my yard, arugula. And one side of my yard was all wild arugula for a few years, and now the other side is, you know, and there's hardly any growing. And yeah. it sort of just traveled over to the other side of the yard. So yeah. whether that's minerals that's getting out of there or something, I don't know. So this question is for both of you. It is from Mark and Julie in Altamont Springs, Florida. Welcome. Thanks for being here tonight, Mark and Julie. They thank us for being here. Uh, they planted flowers last year, uh, sunflowers, th- a couple different kinds, and they saved the heads of the flowers, uh, let them dry, and then tried to replant them. But unfortunately, they didn't get any sprouts or flowers. What are they doing wrong? I don't know. Uh, there's so many variables. What do you think, Corey? What's most likely? Well, 
how were they stored? Did they plant them at the right time? Uh, did they keep them wet enough? There's, yeah, there are a lot of variables <laughs> that can be involved in that. So if you're still on the line and you want to email us a little bit more detail, maybe we can come up with something for you. One of the uh, things I would, go ahead, Kari, I'm sorry. Uh, a lot of times it's just timing. Flowers will come up when they're, when they're ready. A lot of times. <laughs> yeah, one they're of damn the, well ready. <laughs> right. One of the things that I, uh, uh, I've noticed about sunflowers is sometimes the the heads will set, but then there's nothing inside of them. So you have to make sure that there's something inside of them. The other thing you can do with sunflowers is put them between paper towels, can't you? And just let them sprout and then put them in the ground. Yes, I would do that next time. Before you uh, risk, you know, repeating the failure, take some of and I and. Try to find the seeds that are in the very inside. You know, plump ones, feel them with your fingers, make sure they're fully filled out. You're more likely to get, you know, really ripe seeds right in the middle, I think. And and put them on a paper towel, like Greg says. I think that's a great idea. In between two moist paper towels for a few days. Might even want to soak them overnight first. And yep. they'll swell up with water that like that first to help speed the whole process up. And then if they start to germinate, you can plant them then. You know, that way, you know, I guess what you're doing is slowing down the whole process and paying attention to it more and seeing where the weakness is. So, Because it could be sterile seeds. Could be that they dried out once they started to get wet. Could I think Kari's right. Could be they were planted at the wrong time. That And don't be surprised. You've had this experience too, Kari, haven't you, where you plant something, especially a flower, and it doesn't work, and then the next year it comes up and no. you go, yeah. where did that yes. come from? <laughs> Definitely had that happen. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, Lucy says from Fort Collins, she's speaking to what I said about the hard seeds. She says examples of, examples of hard seeds. Well, moringas for sure. Bill, I bet you have some ideas on hard seeds. Yeah, there's, you know, so generally I grew up in Idaho in the high mountains and everything that was wild up there had a characteristic that it had to go through a long cold period before it would germinate. It had to go through a winter. And if it didn't, it wouldn't germinate. And I always thought, you know, after thinking about it, that that was just sort of a survival mechanism, you know, because sometimes we get snow in September, it's cold, it's winter, but then we get Indian summer, end of October, first of November, and it would be like summer. And as I used to say in my classes, you know, seeds don't have calendars or windows. You know, there's (laughs) nobody inside that seat looking out going, oh, this looks like Indian summer. I think we should hold off on germinating, you know. They would just germinate. And so all the seeds that did that, all the plants throughout the millennia that did that are dead. So only the one that learned to lay there for months in the really cold weather are the ones that work now. And so those, that was the, the hard thing for us. And so the general term, and it came out of the forestry industry when they were using uh, uh, tree seeds, is that it, they call it stratification. Because they would layer seeds with um, some sort of potting mixture and another layer of seeds and another layer of potting mixture. And they would put them in these refrigerated units for months to get the seeds to break their dormancy. And so, yeah, that's definitely a something you have to pay attention to. So the easy workaround for that is that if you're in an area with wild seeds and you're worried about that, plant them at exactly the time those seeds would naturally fall off onto the ground anyway. And then you're, you know, mimic nature as closely as you can for where they came from. 
And then you get you you just easily get over most of those kinds of problems. Yeah. It's been a long time since I thought thought about hard seeds, but I know that mesquite, Palo Verde, ironwood seeds, those are all hard seeds. I don't know that any of the vegetable seeds would be hard and need to be scarified, but just in my permaculture experience, I know that there are hard seeds and sometimes they need to you need to do extra to get them going. You know what? I think the reason we have the universe of of vegetables and grain that modern creatures all over the planet grow now and we all love and share and they become our cuisine. The reason they're in that category is mm-hmm. because they're not hard. We left mm-hmm. out all the hard ones. It was oh. just too hard <laughs> to deal with them. All the stuff we grow is pretty easy. And yeah. I think that's why, you know, that's yeah, why we, uh, humans are lazy that way. We don't <laughs> want to have to do extra work if we don't have to. We'll just grow something different. So there's there's a note here from somebody. They didn't include who it was. Sometimes if you grow several varieties of sunflowers in close, pro, close proximity, they will cross-pollinate, and you won't get true seeds for the next year's crop. Right. So, sorry. Uh, Bill. I don't know about cross-pollinating flowers. <laughs> I know which vegetables but, uh, do, but I, I'm, I'm not really familiar with the flowers. Well, you know, I grew well, – I grew. hold on one sec, Bill. I grew – uh, Swiss chard and beets next to each other, and I saved the seeds. Oh, they're good. In, they're in the same family. Right, so I, and they I, will cross. And they will cross. Oh, and I did that for several years, and I got it to the point where I was I no longer had beets. It was just chard. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, in New Zealand, you can buy packets of beet chard <laughs> or Swiss beets or whatever. And so, yeah, that just shows that the same plant has been specialized. By yeah. through selection by different cultures and different places for different different things. The the problem I have with something like that, yes, sunflowers are outcrossing crops. That means they they will take pollen from other flowers and other sunflowers, especially. They're basically insect pollinated bees, but wind mm. will also do it. But in my mind now, there's no such thing as true. Yeah, mm. they're just breeding. They're doing what they need to do now. If you have a prized orange triple, you know, sunflower that you're trying to win a prize at the state fair with, or if you've got a thousand acres of a sunflower oil crop and you want them all to be ready to harvest on the same day, then a concept like true, and it's not really true, it's just consistency comes into play. I mean, you have, you know, as we get larger and larger with commercial farms, those kinds of concepts play more of a role. But for backyard gardeners, that's where the fun starts. Many different sunflowers. I mean, the most amazing thing I've ever done is plant Alan Capular, famous sunflower mix. He spent about 25 years going all over the planet, finding the weirdest sunflowers he could find, white ones and orange ones and singles, triples, doubles, you know, just these amazing things. They hardly look like sunflowers. And he mixed them all together in a packet. And you would grow it, and then they would cross, and then you would come up with even more amazing things that you've never (laughs) seen before. And that was what, that was my goal. And that's diversity. That's fun. You can always, if you find one, isolate it, you know, and try to uh, make it more uniform for what you want to. Mm-hmm. That's, you know, higher level plant breeding. And that that's an opportunity for you. But you should never write off the process itself and say it's producing something untrue. 
It's just doing what it should do. That's what nature does to keep itself vibrant. And in fact, most of the times when you do get crosses like that, you get more vigor. That's a plant. That's a term that they use in the plant world. Lots of times they can be taller and bigger heads and all sorts of weird things can start to happen because you've moved away from uniformity. So that's my little lecture on that. <laughs> nice. So I've got two more questions here and I need short answers, Bill, because we need to wrap this thing up. John from Ridgefield, Washington says, I have heard that walking on carrot seeds after planting gives an intimate contact with the soil. Is this a good idea? Have you ever heard anything like that? No, but it's a good idea for another reason, probably, is that you're compacting the soil and pushing those carrot seeds down deeper because the surest, you know, uh, uh, most of the gardeners I've known over most of the time planting all, all the different vegetable seeds, more of them have failed with carrot seeds than any other, probably. Mm. And it's mm-hmm. because they take so long to germinate. So somebody somewhere got really frustrated and just walked over the top of their whole damn thing, probably stomped <laughs> on it. And because of that, they actually worked. <laughs> That's <laughs> what I'm seeing. I don't know. So Leanne from Prescott says, how important is seed inoculate? Does it really help increase yield? Wow, those are really good questions. Um, there, You can uh, figure that out to the third decimal point in large-scale uh, commercial farms, and that's why they sell them. By and large, for organic growers, we're just now discovering the world of inoculation. We thought we knew what was going on when we started inoculating our nitrogen-fixing crops, the pea family crops, and we mm. quickly figured out that if there was more of the kinds of bacteria and fungus, you know, it was a fungus actually in the soil. It would form a symbiotic relationship with our pea plants. And then therefore they would have more access to nutrition and you would get better yield. And so, you know, what a lot of us learned right away is that most soil has a lot of that in it. Every garden that's ever grown pea family plants probably has some of that left over. It's like sourdough starter stays in your garden. And now we're learning that there's a symbiotic relationship with mycorrhiza with every crop. Oh, yes. And yeah. so, so the whole the whole idea of inoculants is just the doors are being blown off it. So I'm really hopeful that we will uh, find products. But until then, just remember, you know, Elliot Coleman's number one maximum for garden gardeners, don't buy anything. And so what he would do is every time he went over to a neighbor's or a really good gardener's or farmer's yards or field, he would always reach down and pick up a handful of their dirt and bring it home. And that was his inoculant. And he was bringing diversity, microbial oh, diversity. Interesting. Farm. And once it gets going, and not all of it will live, but the stuff that likes your conditions will. It's like sourdough starting. It will always be there then. And so as years go by and you get to be a great gardener, that's not, you know, inoculating isn't as much of a concern. You know, it's it's better to build your soil and do all those other things and mulch correctly and keep your soil damp. Those are those are the values you want to you want to do. Now, if you're starting in a completely new place, you've just dug up the parking lot, then maybe, you know, it has a place. So I won't say, you know, I wouldn't spend money on it. And I do use an inoculant in some of my bits called uh, Soil Secrets. That's, oh yes. um, created that you can find online at Soil Secrets, Michael Melindres's product. Yeah. But it's a multifunction product and doesn't have just one kind of, of fungus in it. So, yeah. So, a couple things, because we're going to wrap this up here. Elliot Coleman, it was an amazing interview. He, I had him on episode 400 of the Urban Farm Podcast. Really amazing. And then I just want to do a shout out to Kari, Kari Spencer. She was, she's been on the podcast multiple times, but episode 323 
was all about her book. Tell us about your book, Kari. <laughs> well, it's a book I wrote a few years back that at the time contained just about everything I knew about urban farming, uh, everything from plants to livestock, and put it all in one big 350-some-odd page book with lots of pictures and had a lot of fun putting it together. Of course, I've learned things since then, but that book, City Farming, is just packed with knowledge. So if you're if you want to just have a sort of a, a basic, all-inclusive guide <laughs> for urban farming, that's where you that's where you might want to go. And you can go to the website at cityfarmingbook.com and get a little taste of what's in the book because I put a lot of articles in and things on that website that will give you an idea of what you might find in the book. Nice. The book is City Farming: How to Guide to Growing Crops and Raising Livestock in Urban Spaces. Ah, cool. And Bill McDormand is the director of Rocky Mountain Seed Alliance. Tell us, what what have you got coming up? Because we get Bill every month, but what do you got coming up? So RockyMountainSeeds.org is where you keep track of all of the stuff we do. We're just a coalition of, of seed stewards and seed savers. Our next event is in at a Hot Springs retreat in um, southern Idaho in May. We're going to wow. do a six-day seed and grain experience. And we've got um, several acres of heritage grains, um, 70 different varieties of rice, dry land rice. Evan tells me they've got growing. We're going to um, harvest and clean grains. We're going to bake them. We're going to go through the basics of seed saving and teaching people how to save seeds, all with hot springs tub soak breaks, we call them, throughout the day. And so it's going to, it's really going to be a fun, uh, fun event. And we'll be eating, uh, fresh local organic food. That's all provided in the tuition. So if you can make that, um, and then I just heard that Joseph Lofthouse, who has a, an enterprise called Landrace Seed, who's really one of the more brilliant plant breeders I've ever been around. He's the only person still to this day, I say, that came to one of our seed schools that answered every question that everyone asked. And so he's he's going to be one of our guests there. So it's going to be really yeah. exciting. And I just wanted to shout out to both Greg and Kari. You know, if you're in the Phoenix area in the fall, we do a thing called the Great American Seed Up and with my wife, Bella. And the four of us are the partners that, that kind of cooked up this crazy idea. <laughs> and I think maybe you can hear from tonight the synergy that goes on between all of us because we're all still learning and open-minded, but we've all learned a lot of stuff too. And how we poke all that in is, is always really fun and interesting to me. So thank you both for allowing me to share this time with you. Oh my gosh. Absolutely. So Kari Spencer, your your website is? Cityfarmingbook.com. And Bill? Yes, RockyMountainSeeds.org. And you can find information on the Great American Seed Up at GreatAmericanSeedUp.com. We do have uh, this isn't public knowledge yet, but we do have an intern that we have hired to make the Great American Seed Up something that you can do in your city. So look for more information on that coming up as we transition through 2020. Thank you all very much for joining us. We deeply appreciate you. And as I always like to say, farm out and I will catch you on the flip side. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. 
Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. One of the first things that many of us learn when we start to garden is how to water and fertilize the soil. But there is an exception to this rule and it's called foliar feeding. You should foliar feed or water the leaves of your plant with liquid fertilizer when you want certain nutrients to be absorbed better. Not only are the leaves great at uptaking liquid fertilizer, if your soil isn't very good or your pH is off, foliar feeding can help your veggies and fruit trees quickly get the nutrients they need to thrive. If you're ready to start foliar feeding for maximum growth yields and quality, head on over to urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves to see our selection of foliar feeding products. That's urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves.